Open your Bible with me to John chapter 13. We'll finish John chapter 13 this morning. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord on Palm Sunday? Whenever we celebrate the entrance of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, riding upon the colt of a donkey. And as the people were gathering together, they were shouting Hosanna and they were laying down. By the way, Hosanna means praise to God, right? Praises. And they were laying down palm branches and coats, paying homage to the king. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the son of David, the king. So we think about that this morning as we come to the text in John chapter 13. We just remember all that's already taken place. Because here we are at the end of that week in John chapter 13. Jesus is in the upper room with His his disciples. He's setting the example for them before He's about to depart. And He's going to talk about that word glory. And when we said, praise God from whom all blessings flow, we were singing the doxology. That word is related to the word that Jesus uses here in this text. Doxa, which is glory. And He talks about how God will be glorified. So He's telling His disciples that He's about to go and die on the cross. Now, they can't understand it all. They don't know why. And Jesus is hoping to encourage them as they uh, are about to face that with His words. And Jesus is giving them commands. And today we're going to see the command. Jesus has already set the example by washing the disciples' feet. He's told them that He's leaving. And now He commands them that they should love one another. And it's not, not the great suggestion. It's the great commandment. That we are called to love one another. And now if you have your Bible open with me, beginning in verse 31 of John chapter 13, let's stand together and read from God's Word. When He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. By the way, the He who went out, well, that was His betrayer, Judas. He said, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word today. I pray, Lord, that you would instill these words upon our heart, that this command that you have given, Lord, would never fall upon those unwilling to receive it and obey it, but, Lord, that your people would be willing to obey this command with all of our hearts, that we would be a people who love one another And the world may know that Jesus lives in us as a result. Father, strengthen your church now through your word. Lord, strengthen our resolve 
toward one another. Strengthen our resolve to lift up the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to talk about how God is glorified, but Jesus begins this text and he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And he begins his comments that way. And if you think about everything that Jesus is leading up to, everything that Jesus has said is all leading up to this moment. It's all leading up to his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. And Jesus says, now it's all about to happen. He says that to his disciples. Now they don't know what's about to happen, but in the garden, Jesus is going to pray. And he's going to say, Father, take this cup from me, if it's possible. But if not, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And then very soon after that, just then, Judas is going to come leading uh, that, that group of men, the, the guards, to come and arrest Jesus. And then Jesus is going to be condemned to death. He's going to be killed on a cross. And all of that's about to take place. And Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. When you think about those words, I mean, for the disciples, it would make absolute perfect sense for Jesus, the Son of Man, to be lifted up and to be set on a throne and rule over the people as a king. And they were all expecting this to happen, but Jesus is revealing to them that the way that the Son of Man is going to be glorified is that He is going to die. He's going to die. He's going to be killed. I want to tell you this morning, Jesus loved His disciples, and He loved them enough to die for them. And He loves you, and He loves me, and He loves us enough to die for us. And he set the example by washing their feet. He set the example by uh, serving them. And if you and I are going to follow in his footsteps, if you will love like Jesus, it means you must love whom Jesus loves. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you give your life up in some sort of uh, sacrificial moment. What it means is that day-to-day way that you treat the people around you reveals that you understand that Jesus gave His life in an act of sacrificial love for you. Not that you deserved it. Not that you're a good person, a good church-going person. And so, yeah, good people like me, we're going to heaven kind of thing. No, and Jesus is my buddy. It's Jesus is the King of heaven that came down and He died for me. An unworthy sinner. That's what it really means. Number one, God is most glorified when Jesus is magnified in your life and in my life. When we lift up Him, lift up His name, and we realize the the worth and the importance of who Jesus is. The word in the Greek language is doxa, And it means importance. Glorifying God means giving Him credit for who He is and what He's done. And when we glorify God, we have to mention Jesus. And plenty of us, we're we're willing willing to talk about God and we'll say, well, God bless you. With a smile on our face. But whenever it comes to conversations about God, sometimes we stop short 
of talking about Jesus. We can mention God all day long in conversation, but when you mention the name of Jesus, power is released as you say that name. And it makes people uncomfortable to talk about Jesus. But God is most glorified whenever we magnify the name of Jesus. I think about magnifying glass. Whenever I was a, a junior high student, which we used to call that junior high, now you guys call it middle school. I don't know which one is better, but when I was in junior high, the, the science teacher gave us a magnifying glass to tell us to take it out on the playground and magnify leaves and bugs and just look at them. And we figured out that you could take it and you could let the sun uh, hit it. And if you just you hold it at the right focal distance away from an ant, you can fry an ant. Did you ever learn that? I learned that. But what is the purpose of a magnifying glass? The purpose of the magnifying glass is to, to make things larger. And we get this word magnify uh, from the Greek words that really mean to make it great, make it bigger. Magnify Jesus. And God is glorified when you put that spotlight on Jesus, whenever you put the magnifying glass on Jesus for the world to see. That's when God is most glorified. Because this is His greatest act of sacrificial love that He's ever demonstrated, sending His one and only Son to die on the cross for you and me. And the world needs to see that and hear that message from you. From you, if you know Him. Now that's what He wanted the disciples to do more than anything. So He reminded them that God is glorified. And He was glorified at once in Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me. And just as I said to the Jews... So now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. You know, Jesus is not physically here with us. Now His Holy Spirit is here with us. What does He want us to be doing? He wants us to seek Him. To seek after Him. To think upon Him. You know that word doxa, it, it really has an idea of thinking as well. It's thinking great thoughts about God. And He wants us to think about Him. To realize He's so important. In the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word is kavod. And the word kavod has to do with weight or heaviness. Whenever God fell on the mountain of Sinai, where Moses was there, it was like a heaviness fell down on that mountain. I've seen pictures of Mount Sinai where they believe the real Mount Sinai is today. You know, the whole top of that mountain is scorched black. From the glory of the presence of God that came down on that mountain. I mean, what it would be like if you dwelled in the kavod of God. If you walked around in the glory of God every single day. Well, how do you do that? Well, you magnify Jesus. You talk about what He's done for you. Daniel chapter 7, Jesus began by calling Himself the Son of Man. And it wasn't the only time where Jesus had referred to Himself as the Son of Man. It was a reference to the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, 
Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, that's the word kavod, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. To whom belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever? Amen. Who? Yeah, Jesus. Not to you and me, but to Jesus. There's a throne in heaven and there's only one worthy to sit upon the throne and His name is Jesus. You know, there's a throne in your heart as well. <laughs> At some point, the disciples realized that there are two seats. One on either side of Jesus. Jesus seated upon the throne and they have this image of Him on the throne and they think, well, I'd like to be on one side. And John says, oh, I'd like to be on the other. And when it, when it clicked in their minds that Jesus was going to be lifted up as the king. Now, whether they thought that was an earthly throne or a heavenly throne, we don't know. But we do know that they believed that he was going to come in glory. And when they realized that, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Wow, that's a bold statement. Matthew tells us that it wasn't James and John that said it, that they went and got mommy to do it for them. Which, I mean, sit on a throne, but we're going to make sure mommy's the one that helps us get there. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us one to sit at your right hand and one to your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Amen. And it was like when, when the disciples realized that Somebody was going to get to sit beside Jesus on his throne. It was like throwing a dog, a, a dog, a pack of dogs, a bone, and they just went to fighting over it. And you look at what happens next after they, they go to Jesus and they ask who could sit on one side, who could sit on the other. It says, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Man, they're ready to kill each other. And Jesus called them. To him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. I think about who, who would be the one that Jesus would have seated at his right hand, and who would be the one at his left. It was probably some African. Servant of the Lord Jesus who lived a life in destitute poverty. Served the people around them and died without any recognition on the planet. The lowliest of the low. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. 
Magnifying Jesus means understanding that there is only one throne that matters. The seat of the king. That king left his throne. Had a humble birth. A servant's heart. A sinless life. A sinner's death. And a Savior's empty tomb. And all praise and glory and honor belong to Him and Him alone. And when you get that perspective, then you can begin to see the people around you properly. You can only have the perspective of Jesus when you take the position of Jesus. And the position of Jesus was to kneel at the disciples' feet and to wash them and to dry them with a towel. John 12, verse 32, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. What was Jesus speaking about? He was speaking about His atoning death on the cross when He's lifted up from the earth on the cross. But for you and me, in our context today, what that means is that we point people to the cross and we magnify the name of Jesus. And when we magnify the name of Jesus, all people will be drawn to Him. The problem is we want to try to draw people to us. And we want to try to draw people to church. And we want to try to draw people to a program. But what we need to draw people to is a Savior who died for them. So you got to be willing to talk about Jesus in public. you just got to be willing. If you love people, you'll talk about Jesus. But God is most glorified whenever Jesus is magnified. Secondly, God is most glorified when love is multiplied. When love is multiplied. Now look at the next statement that Jesus commands him. In verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When I think about that, it, 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 it makes me wonder, well, what does Jesus mean that it's a new commandment? Because this command is all the way back in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19 verse 18, the Lord says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that command has been around for a very, very, very long time. But what's different about it? Jesus just showed them what love really looks like. Jesus just showed them that it's not just about not bearing a grudge and not showing vengeance, but what it's vengeance, what it's really about, what that command is really about, and it's a renewed command. Is it's about serving. It's about going out of your way to serve one another. And when the world sees the picture of that, the world sees Jesus living in you and me. Up until this point, Jesus's, in Jesus' ministry, the disciples' relationship with one another, uh, their relationships have been grounded by the physical presence of Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They slept in tents with Jesus. They did all of these things. 
with Jesus. But soon, and Jesus was telling them, very soon, I won't be with you anymore. He's made it as plain as He could possibly make it. They're still holding on to the physical presence of Jesus. But what Jesus is doing is He's loosening their grip on His physical presence and redirecting their grip toward one another. That they need to hold on to each other and love each other. They needed the reassurance that they would be with Jesus later so that they could serve Jesus in the presence. They, they needed to learn to love one another without Jesus' physical presence because they were going to become the physical hands and feet of Jesus to the world that needed them. Not literal hands, I said physical. They were to be the light of the world, manifested for all to see. And in order for that to happen, they needed to love each other. They needed to forgive, forgive one another, just as they had been forgiven by Jesus. We prove our love for Jesus by our love for one another. Remember, if you want to love like Jesus, you've got to love whom Jesus loves. And we say, well, who does Jesus love? Well, <laughs> Jesus loves everyone. I remember the exact spot where I was. And the exact moment of my life when I determined in my heart, whenever I was in the third grade in the line to lunch, and I looked at somebody that was being mean to me, and I almost said, I hate you. But I remember my mom telling me, that we shouldn't hate anyone because Jesus loves everyone. I remember that. And I remember that exact moment when I determined in my heart, I would never say I hate a person ever again. And since then, I think I've done pretty well to not say I hate anyone. But have I ever had hate in my heart? <laughs> sure. Sure I have. And for that, I repent. And, but here's the thing. If you're going to love like Jesus, there is absolutely no room in your heart for hate. You cannot hate and be resentful and bear a grudge toward anyone. You, you've got to allow the Holy Spirit of God to cleanse all of that out of you and determine, I will never hate a person created in the image of God. I can't hate it. John says, how can we say that we love God whom we haven't seen and hate our neighbor who is made in His image? How can we do that? And if you say you hate someone, what you've just said is, I don't really love God. That may be a harsh thing to think about, but it's the truth. And not only can you not bear hate, but how can you tell me that you love me and despise my family? I've had so many people tell me, oh, I, I'm good with Jesus. I think Jesus is, Jesus is who He said He was. And He is a good teacher and all of this. I'm great with Jesus. I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. I just can't stand the church. 
I just can't stand organized religion. I've had people tell me that. And I understand they're coming from a position of hurt. They've been hurt by the church before or or maybe they just don't like getting up on Sunday mornings and go to church and all that stuff, whatever it might be. And they're not really saying they despise the church. I hope they don't. Some people do. I think some people do. Yeah, I know some people do. But how can you say that you love me and, and say you despise my family? How could you demonstrate your love for me but neglect the needs of my wife and my children if you see them in need? And how can you say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church? It's like saying, I love Pastor Josh, but I can't stand Miss Allison. Now, I can understand it the other way around. I love Miss Allison, but I can't stand Pastor Josh. Jesus is passionate about his church. And one thing that I've learned going through the book of Acts with my Sunday school class is that Paul had that same passion for the church. He's, he's stoned all the way. He's, he's stoned and beaten and all these things. All the way through Asia, he's persecuted. But yet he keeps going back to the same places because he knows that the church needs to be strengthened. They need to be encouraged. They need pastors. They need deacons. And he just keeps on going, even though they're going to kill him. Why? Because he loves the people of God. How do you feel about the people of God? And if there is anyone in this place, listen, revival will never happen. The presence of God will never fall, fall down. If you have anyone, not a single person in this place, a single person in this place that you bear a grudge against, you got to deal with it. Becoming a Christian and a disciple of Jesus means lips that confess Jesus as Lord of all. Magnify Jesus, but a life that proclaims that it's true in the relationships with the people around you. The, the proof is in how you treat others. And when you're loved by Jesus and you love others in turn, love is multiplied. <clears throat> I'm not really good at math, I'm really not. But I know this, that whenever I love you and you sense the love of God and then you love God in return and then you love others in return, that's multiplication. So, God is most glorified whenever Jesus is magnified, whenever love is multiplied, and lastly, when mercy is maximized. Now, we think about that word mercy for just a minute. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. And I love that word because I need the mercy of God. Well, there's somebody in this picture that really needs the mercy of God because they're really out of line, but Jesus still loves Peter. Each of the apostles thought more highly of themselves than they ought. Peter saw himself as having no need of the cleansing of Jesus in the previous section. Now he is worthy to bear the cross of Jesus. And Peter believed that he could stand where Jesus stood and walk the hill that Jesus walked up to Calvary and die the death that Jesus died. He believed that in that moment. I'm, Jesus, Peter is thinking about Jesus. I'm his second-hand man. Man, if anybody can do this, I can. 
Yet Peter couldn't even stay awake as long as Jesus in the garden. The contrast between Jesus' sinless life with Peter's inability to withstand temptation for a single night, for a single evening, is stark. We find Peter, early on in the very beginning, we see Peter is impulsive. He begins his relationship with Jesus by saying, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. And then here we are, right outside the garden, on the way to the garden, Peter's saying, I'm going to die with you. And then he falls asleep in the garden. He gets angry and violent with Jesus' captors. And then ultimately we see him three times denying Jesus in the courtyard and on the third time invoking a curse upon himself. Peter didn't prove himself to be a worthy apostle. What he proved was that he was an utter failure. And that's who we all are without Jesus. Jesus' words must have stung like a knife. Snapped Peter out of his delusions of grandeur and brought him back down to the dirt. He thought to himself, this is my time, I'll prove my worth. But he was suddenly and painfully reminded of his own frailty. But what does Jesus do? We see Jesus here after everything is over. He's died on the cross. Peter denied Him. He's died on the cross. And then He's raised again. And Peter has witnessed the empty tomb but hasn't seen Jesus yet. Jesus appears on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee back where it all began. And He's fixed breakfast. Breakfast with Jesus. I had fish on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee whenever I visited Israel. Magnificent sight. And I thought about the three times Peter denied Jesus and then the three times right there on that seashore where Jesus restored him. Now listen, Peter was already forgiven. Jesus forgave Peter. He didn't have to confess three times in order to be forgiven. He was already forgiven. He needed to confess, profess his love for Jesus three times so that Peter would be reminded of his relationship with Jesus and who he was. The lesson for us is to be reminded that there is only one sinless Savior. And you and I are not Him. We're not Him. Neither is the one who is sitting next to you. Why do we put standards on others that we are not willing to live up to ourselves? Why do we condemn the people that God has forgiven? It's how we express Christ-like love in an unforgiving world whenever we say to someone next to us, I forgive you. And it's the only way we'll ever get along as a church. Otherwise, we'll walk around with a grudge, with a chip on our shoulder, 
And all it will take is about five minutes around church people before they knocked your chip down off onto the ground, stomped on it, ground it, left it as a pile of sawdust on the ground, and we'll be ready to quit Jesus forever. Forgiveness says, mercy says, we deserve, you and I both deserve much worse. But Jesus has given us much more than we deserve. Limitations 3, 22-23, my favorite verses in all of Scripture. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That night, Jesus would be denied by one of His closest disciples three times. But that morning, He bled and He died for Peter's soul. Some of you believe that people cannot change. A leopard can't change its spots. You burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. You'll never get that close again where you can hurt me the way that you've done. But I want to challenge that idea. People can do People can change, and they do every single day. How do they change? Well, it's called sanctification. It means being, becoming more like Jesus. You can't change yourself, but Jesus can change you. Matthew 9 and verse 13, they were, they were ridiculing Jesus because He was eating with sinners and tax collectors. I mean... Eating with sinners, but man, eating with those tax collectors, that's the worst thing. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I can't help but think about Cain and Abel. Cain brought his sacrifice. He brought a an offering, the Bible says, from the, the fruit of the ground. He took it to the Lord. And the Lord looked on Cain's heart. He rejected the sacrifice. And he said, no, not this way. And Abel came and he brought the blood of a, an animal to the Lord. The Lord looked on Abel's heart and he said, yes, you get it, Abel. You understand. And he accepted that sacrifice. What did Abel understand that, that Cain didn't understand? Abel understood that he was a sinner in need of the mercy of God. And he pleaded the blood of that animal before God. He presented his heart. Well, Cain was angry about that. And he killed his brother as a result. For you and me to have that heart of mercy and 
be that person that forgives. We've got to look in the mirror and see, not, not a good person. Not necessarily even a person that messes up sometimes. But you've got to see a person that the only way you're ever going to make it is if you plead the mercy of Jesus over your life. Because you deserve to be separated from His presence. And listen, if you begin to see yourself that way, God will begin to use you in amazing ways and the glory of God will be poured out over your life in a marvelous way. I wonder today, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I wonder today if there's someone here in this place where you had the idea that you'll stand before God one day and hopefully your good will outweigh your bad. Hopefully I'll make it to heaven because I've been a good person. I want to tell you today, you're never going to make it that way. The Bible says in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, that your righteousness is as filthy rags. You need the mercy of God. And I want to tell you today, the good news is this, that Jesus is a merciful Savior. He was glorified by God whenever He was lifted up on the cross in your place for you and for me. And what He calls you to do is to trust in what He's done for you. The Lord of heaven, the Creator of everything that you and I see died for you because of His great love for you. And if you want to put your faith in Him today and be saved from your sin and set apart for His glory, pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I admit to You that I'm a sinner. I've done things I know are wrong and I've failed to do things that I know are right. Jesus, I deserve the penalty for my sin. But Jesus, I believe that You have had mercy on me, a sinner. You died on the cross for my sin. And You were raised again on the third day. Jesus, come into my heart. Make me a new person. Forgive me of all my sin. And I'll spend the rest of my life loving You and serving You. In your holy name I pray. Amen. I want you to stand with me. If you've prayed that prayer and you've asked for the mercy of Jesus over your life, asked Him to save you, I want to tell you that today the Lord Jesus has heard that prayer. Your name has been written down in the Lamb's book of life. So you can say thank you to the Lord for your salvation. But one of the things that He expects from you is to share that, to confess it publicly to the people of God. And so this invitation is for you to come and make your profession of faith public and say, I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And we'll celebrate along with the angels of heaven over your salvation. We want to offer to you believers baptism. We want to offer to you 
Sunday school and literature so that you can grow in your knowledge of Jesus. And so this is your invitation to come. Don't hold it in. Let us know what Jesus has done for you. If you need prayer, our altar counselors will be here. We'll pray for you. We'll love you like Jesus right here at the altar. And if you want to join Myrtle Grove Baptist Church, you've been coming for some time, but you know today the Lord has told you that this is the place for you. You come.